1: From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Hello,
2: and welcome to Decoder. I'm Nilay Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my new podcast about big ideas and other problems. My guest today is someone I think a lot of us have been watching for a very long time. Marquez Brownlee, who runs the extraordinarily popular tech YouTube channel MKBHD.
3: Hey, what's up? MKBHD here. Welcome to 2021.
2: Marquez is one of the best reviewers I know, but he's also one of the most savvy and successful YouTubers in the game. And he's been in the game for a long time. He started the channel in 2009 when he was just a teenager, making videos about his new HP laptop in his bedroom. Since then, he's grown it to one of the biggest tech channels on YouTube, with 13.4 million dedicated subscribers, a podcast, and a growing support team. Now, I am fascinated by the business of influence and the creator economy, so I wanted to talk to Marquez about the day-to-day operation of a YouTube channel, where he plays every role from business development to ad sales to actually reviewing phones. We talked about what he can and can't scale, how he thinks about his dependency on YouTube as a platform, and what the future of his business looks like. Here's a little news. He's launching some more channels very soon. One thing to pay attention to in this conversation is how locked in Marquez is on his business. It's something that strikes me every time I talk to him or really any successful influencer or creator. What looks effortless and fun to the viewer is often the result of careful planning and investment against business goals. Now for all, YouTubers are entrepreneurs, and Marquez talks that talk with the best of them. Alright, Marquez Brownlee, MKBHD. Here we go. Marquez Brownley from MKBHD Incorporated. Sure. Welcome to Decoder.
3: (laughs) Thanks for having me. Sorry in advance for all the noise. There's going to be random noises. What's random noise? Uh, You know, we're in a building surrounded by other random tenants who make noises and have construction sometimes. So so it just just happens. How does that work for you when you're shooting your videos? Oh, man. Well, usually it's quiet until I turn the mic on or hop on a podcast like this. Then they make lots of noise. And uh, we just kind of wait till noises stop. It's not ideal. You got to embrace uncertainty. Exactly. I mean, I'm very, I'm very used to it.
2: (laughs) So you run a very popular YouTube channel. It's your channel. You started it when you were a teenager in your parents' house. I think a lot of people listening to this kind of know your story, but give folks the quick version of that, of that journey.
3: Sure. Uh, so I was a teenager in high school and was always into tech, but I had to make a big purchase. I had to buy a laptop. And so I watched a whole bunch of YouTube videos on which laptop to buy. Finally bought a laptop and saw some other stuff with the laptop that I didn't see in those videos. So my natural response was turn on the webcam, talk about those things, upload it to YouTube, just in case someone else watching videos to choose what to buy could see that. And so that, that kind of snowballed into just making all kinds of videos with the laptop and then the software and the, the cooler and the mouse and the keyboard and just turned into a tech YouTube channel. And here we are.
2: So that was a very early version of YouTube, right? Like, Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't want to make you like go back into your your brain at that moment and imagine yourself as a teenager. But the instinct to make a video on YouTube then and the instinct to make a video on YouTube now, it feels like just very different. Everyone's motivations are very different across that sweep of time. What was your instinct? Like, this is the best way for me to share what I know. It's not write a blog post. It's make a video.
3: Yeah, you're right. I mean, I I don't think there's a lot of kids in 2009 who... (laughs) bought a laptop and decided to make a video about it on YouTube. But I don't know. I think there was something about all those videos I was watching that I really enjoyed and they helped me a lot in my purchase decision. So I felt like the best way for me to like, I couldn't believe I was finding something that I didn't see in those other videos. So I was like, the the obvious answer here is to add to that collection of information. So when someone else is choosing what to buy, they can make a better choice than I did. You know, they can, they can watch my video and realize something they wouldn't have seen in the others. So yeah, videos, is is, it was a natural medium. I've never been much of a writer. So uh, yeah, video just felt like the place to start. You were
2: making those videos because you wanted to help people out. Now you run a, a fairly large operation. I actually just saw you tweet, you're hiring like six people. How big is your business? How many people does it have? And how many people do you want it to be?
3: Yeah, I think a lot of people when they imagine a YouTube channel don't imagine very much work behind <laughs> it. Uh, so we we put out uh, over 100 20 videos last year, so it's a team of five currently here in the studio, which is a 7,000 square foot empty box that we filled up with video gear. It's kind of a fun time. But it's me, it's Andrew, Vin, Brandon, Michael. It's a combination of cinematographers, set designers, motion graphics specialists, and myself. Adding to that is uh, both proactive and reactive. I think we, we want to do more, but we also want to do better. So we're adding, uh, you know, writing talent. We're adding more editing talent and things like that to take some of the work off of my shoulders, but also be able to scale up because we're we're making a weekly podcast now. We're making, uh, we're planning to start a couple new YouTube channels this year. So uh, there's a lot more going on. But I think the the teamwork of it all is something that's pretty underrated. There's a lot going on behind the scenes that make the videos.
2: One of the challenges with a channel like yours versus we run a channel too. We have lots of people on our channel. We, we just have a big cast of characters at The Verge. MKBHD, that's you. Mm-hmm. You are a pretty unscalable property. Do you, Is that group of people you're bringing in and hiring, is that t- to help you spend more time in front of the camera? Or is that an attempt to, to
3: scale you in a different way? It's a good train of thought. It's a little bit of both, actually. We kind of look at the MKBHD channel one way and I think that will still be me in front of the camera, but we also are planning on starting other channels that do have a different look to them where there's multiple people on camera. And so the scalability part comes from kind of just you know building a smart business <laughs> in a way. You don't want to just, uh, you can if you want, just continue making videos like normal and that can grow in a way and that's fine. But I think uh, there's a lot of really fun stuff that gets enabled by what we have going here and we want to take advantage of that. You said you're launching new channels. What are you launching? do I give away my cards this early? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right, so we have a, the Waveform Podcast. I'm in the studio right now. You can kind of see it behind me. It looks very pretty. Nobody ever sees it. We're launching a video a video version of the Waveform Podcast. That's going to be fun. That'll be its own YouTube channel. And uh, we're launching one other channel that I'm going to keep a secret, but that I'll tell you will have a lot more faces on it. It will have a lot more casual content and things that people have wanted to see but haven't seen from the MKBHD channel. And that's going to be a lot of fun. That's going to launch this year, too. And then maybe some more. Maybe we'll find some other ideas, too.
2: So that's both this year. First half this year, it, we're talking the first weeks of 2021.
3: So I, it's a long time. I think spring for both. That's the, that's the plan.
2: You know, it's really interesting because you and I have known each other for a while. And I just remember one of, one of my first conversations with you, you, you were just intently focused on completing a motion graphics course that you had been taking Mm -hmm. and now it's several years later and you're you're not that deep in the weeds like you've just hired a motion graphics person and you're talking about scaling your business and using your facilities in a different way so i always ask people what's your decision making framework but i think kind of a different version of that question for you is how has that changed right like you've just been working for yourself since Mm -hmm. you were a kid now you're running a large business there's people who depend on you how has your framework changed and how is it growing
3: Yeah, so here's the way I like to think about it. And maybe this is a weird analogy, but stick with me. So (laughs) I I think of myself, first of all, a YouTuber is a bunch of different jobs in one. Let's say you're a tech YouTuber, part of your job is writing, part of your job is being on camera, part of your job is shooting the video, part of your job is editing the video, part of your job is promoting, uploading, sharing, and content strategy and all that stuff. And so I kind of thought of myself as this business was growing and as I was making these things, kind of like an octopus, where I have one arm doing one thing, another arm doing one thing, and some are more precious than others. Like the the on-camera or the writing or the editing are very important to what makes an MKBHD video. But it turned out that I was able to find talented people that, I could hand them, I could cut off one of my arms and hand it to them, and I could do a way better job with that part of it, whether it's being behind the camera or cinematography or motion graphics, like you mentioned, and really take that way beyond to the next level. So the entire channel and the entire project benefits from me not having to control every single part of it, finding people who are way better at these things. It's still a bit of a process for me. We're kind of looking at it like hiring unicorns, where I could hire an editor, but you also want an editor that understands the tech world, and understands YouTube, and understands what makes a YouTube edit versus you know they could have edited for BBC or, or CNN or something like that. So there's still a, a learning process to finding the right people for these different places. But the end goal is to to find those people and cut off another arm and hand it to them. And this 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 yeah this this beast of I don't even know what analogy I'm building now, but uh. An octopus whose arms are chopped off. It's an
2: octopus with no arms. Yeah. It's kind of like a jellyfish situation. Exactly. Is that how that works? I don't think that's how it, I don't <laughs> run our science team. Well, that's like a really interesting way of thinking about it, because that's how normal organizations scale, right? You delegate some chunk of the work to someone else. You put them in charge. You hold them accountable for it. It's still at your face, though. So even if you send the work out, you still got to manage it and you know hold people to your standards and the, the thing you said about finding people who understand YouTube is really interesting to me because those people tend to be YouTubers, but they don't necessarily get to be YouTubers and they come work for you. How do you manage that dynamic?
3: Yeah, that's a definitely something we think about a lot. So part of it is you find people who are either already YouTubers and willing to to put that skill towards something new. And we also highly encourage people to to just do their thing and freelance and run their own channels on the side, and that's fine. But yeah, it's kind of a... It's it's kind of tough finding that that right person. That's why it's taken so long. By the way, we have five people here now. I'm sure I would have been hiring all year last year if there wasn't a pandemic, and we would have been, you know, in the midst of what we're trying to do now. And it is definitely a process trying to find the people who will actually, you know, be dedicated to the exact thing you're trying to do. Yeah, it's interesting. You,
2: you said we a couple of times. Yeah. Who's the we in your equation?
3: Yeah, I mean, so I still have a couple precious arms, which is the the (laughs) edit, I I still edit 99% of everything. I have the motion graphics and uh, cinematographers, I'll call them, Vin and Brandon, who will just go in on like eight hours of editing for the first seven seconds of the video, the the intros, the fun stuff like that. But I'm I'm 99% of the edit. I'm writing everything. And I think at the end of the day, like you said, it's still in my face and I'm on camera and it's still my presentation of my ideas and things that I'm sharing. But the we is, so so. Andrew is sort of a co-producer, assistant, whatever you want to call it. And we kind of share the vision of how the thing grows and what we want to make. And I, I say we because I just like to give credit to the, the people who've made it possible. Like if I, when the pandemic started, uh, it felt kind of like a throwback where it was just I, I kind of gave everyone the chance to get home and stay safe, and it was just me and the camera again. And I was like, this is kind of how it started. And yeah, it's really hard <laughs> to make the stuff you want to make. So, yeah, it's definitely a, it's a team process, and I like to give credit for that.
2: We've basically shot all of our videos with my directors on, on Zoom, and I'm just like, man, this is not even close. It's very fun, and then that novelty fades, and you're like, I yeah. I miss having everybody here. It sounds like you've got people back in your studio
3: you're working as a team again, right? Yeah, it's fortunate
2: we have that. You're, I mean, you're a small business owner. What what what
3: have your COVID protocols been? Is it just you're you're hoping for the best information you got? Basically, yeah, and and hopefully, you know, the vaccine and everything come as quickly as possible. At this point, we're we're not traveling for anything. If you'd seen our travel schedule in the, the couple of years leading up to 2020, it was it was a lot. And actually, we traveled for I think six out of the first six weeks of 2020 but haven't done any of that since. We're just coming into the studio, making and heading out. There's also uh, Retro Tech, our YouTube original series production happening here behind the scenes. So that'll all come out later in 2021. But that also has its own set of protocols with uh, parts of that team coming to the studio and getting COVID tests every week. So it's, it's a little different. It's a little different. But I'm like required to
2: disclose now that Retro Tech is produced in partnership with Fox Media Studios. I have nothing to do with it, but it's our company, so I got to I got to say it. And I am told their COVID protocols are pretty hardcore. One question from our team, our video team, that I thought was really interesting here is: as you've been on the path of growing bigger and bigger, you are very successful, you're very popular, people really like you. You haven't had a boss. How do you grow and improve when sort of the audience is just overwhelmingly telling you that you're great? Like, where do you find the the incentive or the the self criticism to improve? Because you've definitely like. Obviously, wildly improved over time, but where does that really come from?
3: Oh, thank you. Uh, I, from the beginning, always had a sort of a driving light, whatever you want to call it, to make what I would want to watch. And you can sort of expand that into running a channel that I would want to subscribe to. And I like, I watch a lot of YouTube, I watch a lot of tech videos, I watch a lot of all kinds of other videos. And so I get inspiration from all kinds of places. So it is great to see comments and people enjoying the videos and enjoying the higher frequency of videos and the better production and, and learning more from the Explained series and all sorts of other fun stuff. But at the same time, there's a lot more that I see that I'm inspired by and, and more stuff that I want to make. And so that's that's ultimately what it comes down to. It's just an internal driving light of like, you know, it would be cool if we could also make more of these. And, you know, we don't do enough of this and we could do better at this. Let's try to do all that. I don't think there's a, I think it's sort of a moving goalpost situation where we do improve and we achieve goals that we set out for ourselves. And then as we arrive at that horizon, we look forward and we see, you know, there's some other cool stuff we could do, too. And so we attack that, too.
2: Give me a sense of those goals. Are they, I'm guessing it's not, but there's some goals that are very quantitative, like view counts. We're going to increase view counts. There's some goals like just sheer number of videos on the channel. We're going to produce more. And then there's obviously qualitative goals, like we're going to attack this format and be really good at it. How do you set and define those goals?
3: Yeah, a lot of it is is because we're on YouTube. It's a little bit driven by the platform. So those quantitative goals that you mentioned are, honestly, a lot of it is tracking metrics and viewer retention and making sure you can quantitatively uh, confirm the quality of a video. We've never really set view count goals, but we did have a goal to make 100 videos in the calendar year, and we did end up doing that, which is great. But a lot of that stuff that we're, we're aiming for is more... I guess qualitative is the word, but it's it's hard to define. It's like we, we watch stuff and we want to make good stuff, and we're inspired by things we watch off of the platform, on the platform. We just had this whole conversation this week with the team about how we can do Retro Tech Season 3 even better than Retro Tech Season 2. So like a lot of things uh, are just sort of It's like the eye test, really. Like It's a visual medium. We're making stuff for people to watch, and we end up getting goals about more things we want to watch. And I think as a creator, a lot of people have that same experience. Your taste is a little bit above your actual ability. So we go out and shoot for a whole week and make a car video, and we, we watch all our footage back and we're like, I think we need a camera car. I think, we need, <laughs> I think we need to change some stuff. So you do the best you can with what you got, but I think you're always looking up.
2: We're gonna take a quick break, but when we come back, I'll ask Marquez about the specifics of how he makes money on YouTube.
0: Support for Decoder comes from Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Whether you're seeking a location for your podcast, teaching language courses, or selling handcrafted ceramics, Squarespace has all the tools you need to create a home on the web. You can create a polished professional place that connects people with whatever it is you're excited about. Squarespace also supports all forms of connecting with those people, whether you're selling products online or in person, or offering memberships. You can make your website look exactly how you want it. They even have the tools to help you create a custom logo. And they make it easy to create a place for people to schedule an appointment with you, browse your services, or learn more about why you do what you do. Visit squarespace.com decoder for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code DECODER to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain.
1: Support for DECODER comes from Green Chef. If you could make a single change in your life that made you feel better and got you performing at your highest level, you'd do it, right? That's what makes Green Chef such a no-brainer. The meal kits offer a ton of delicious options that make it easy to eat cleaner and feel better without spending hours in the kitchen. They'll deliver everything you need to make convenient, wholesome, tasty meals right to your doorstep with more than 80 meal options available every single week. Green Chef's menu is packed with farm-fresh ingredients you might not find elsewhere, like figs, artichokes, and sustainably sourced seafood. Plus, their menu now includes a ton of science-backed gut and brain health recipes, which were developed with dietitians to boost energy and immunity while improving digestion. Go to greenchef.com slash 60Decoder and use code 60Decoder to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's greenchef.com slash 60Decoder and use code 60Decoder to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. Okay, we're back
2: with Marquez Brownlee. We have talked about your business as... A YouTube business in a pretty focused way. Let's just dive into that for a minute. How do you make money on YouTube?
3: Yeah. Oh, this is this is the number one holiday family reunion question. <laughs> uh, um,
2: oh, good. You're like well practiced.
0: Then.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's the simple answer, and there's the there's the business long drawn out answer. I'm sure you would like probably both actually. So, YouTube ads is like the the primary uh, fundamental way uh, that YouTubers make money. So, you upload a video. There's ads somewhere on it or in it, and the YouTuber gets paid for the placement of those ads because they brought the eyeballs to the video. So the the deeper understanding of that is there's different types of ads. There's the ads that are built into YouTube through the AdSense program. That's one version of it. You don't really get to control those ads, but you can have still banner ads. You can have pre-rolls, mid-roll video ads, things like that. And there's a whole ecosystem there where you try to find a balancing act between how many ads do you place? Do you put mid-rolls in your videos or not? Uh, but then there's also the the integrations that you do control, which can be inside the videos. Sometimes it's a pre-roll you say this video is sponsored by. You have a, a integrated section inside of a video or a post-roll. You get control over that, which is often very beneficial because that's way better targeting for the company who's trying to talk to somebody. And then there's all kinds of other alternate ways that YouTube channels make money. For example, we have a merch store. You can buy apparel that has our cool designs on it logos, things like that. Uh, we also have a podcast that's its own format of how it makes money. I'm sure the podcasting world is familiar with that. Yeah, there's all kinds of other stuff, but generally the fundamental building blocks of that making money as a YouTuber. And for me come from AdSense built into YouTube sponsored integrations, uh, built into the videos and on the channel. And I'll, I'll throw in, uh, our little apparel line on merch stuff is fun too.
2: Everyone wants that merch store to be the biggest one, and it's always the the third biggest one. Yeah. It's like the dream is like, actually, now I run Supreme. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I make videos on the side, but it's a long way to there. So, AdSense, uh, for people to know, that's the YouTube ad program. That's where Google goes out and sells the ad inventory, and then you give them slots in your video. You can say, uh, you mentioned mid rolls. You can either say there's a mid roll slot for Google to put an ad into or not.
3: Yeah, you can you can give as many as you want.
2: And then you can just get a cut of that. But you don't actually sell that directly. Exactly. And then the sponsored integrations, that's where you sell it directly. And famously, I think every tech YouTuber has a dbrand deal. You're welcome, all of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you really built that company. I have, I have a million questions about that too, but um, maybe for a different podcast. But, but that's where you say in the middle, check out this dbrand skin. Um, or this other product who sponsored my video, who makes that deal? Because that's your deal. YouTube doesn't get any of that money, right?
3: Right, exactly. That's my inbox. That's that's me going, this is a, a product that we believe in or that we think is actually really good and worth sharing. And part of the funny part of that is like, a lot of these products are, or companies are so good that I would want to share them anyway. So it's, it's kind of funny, like trying to negotiate what's a great way to to promote their product and that works with our business. Because it's like, yeah, it's good. I'm just—it's going to end up in a video anyway. But let's work on something. But yeah, it's like a—it's something like Dbrand would be perfect because it's not a conflict of interest where I'm sponsored by a thing that's also reviewed on the channel. Uh, but it's—it's it's very adjacent. It's obviously a skin or a case for a product, and we've worked closely with that company for a couple years now. So uh, yeah, they're just—we'll we'll find something good and and work with them directly.
2: So when you say that's your inbox your inbox is full of sponsorship offers from other companies you say okay i think this is appropriate who makes the deal who like writes the contract who negotiates the rate
3: yes uh, i negotiate the rate uh, the contract is either built by so we have an agent. I have an agency that I work with WME. So their lawyers will look over the contract and negotiate the terms of the contract. So I'm not literally reading the contracts. So that's an arm I chopped off. I used to do that too. <laughs> um, so that's that's great to have them. They they take their cut obviously for also bringing some of those contracts and and those companies to my inbox. But at the end of the day, it's like if you could see the amount of stuff we say no to. It's just like a constant flow of. We want to be on the channel. We want to be in a video and uh, finding the stuff that really makes sense. And then that's just me going, let's see how we can make this work best.
2: So you said WME. WME is William Morris Endeavor. It's one of the biggest talent agencies in the world. They're they're a big deal. I think I have to disclose that I think Fox Media is wrapped by WME, too. I always err on the side of over-disclosing. That's a company that, when you started, did not have an influencer relations department, was not making brand deals on YouTube and now you're saying they run your contracts for you. What is the process of growing up inside of a company that's also learning how to do this work? Or did they just come to you and say, we're ready for you?
3: A lot of stuff like that is so new because we've been on the forefront of it. There's a lot of things that YouTubers didn't do before 2014 or 2017 that, that is sort of regular and commonplace now. With WME, it was pretty good. They, they kind of had a couple ideas about how to translate. And we've gone back and forth over time about how to work better together. And that's also been a multi-year process. But yeah, it just—it kind of comes with just saying no to a lot of stuff and telling them why until we finally get it right. And uh, it sometimes you just got to exhaustively say no a lot of times.
2: It, what just strikes me out of this conversation is, well, on purpose, because I'm asking the questions this way, but you were describing a lot of management work. Yeah. Right. Even a conversation about how to make Retro Tech season three better is time that you are not reviewing a phone. It's mm-hmm. time you're not in front of the camera, it's time you're not in the edit. How do you manage your time? Like, do you have just a totally regimented schedule?
3: I live inside of Google Calendar and Google Tasks. I would be a lost human without those things. Yeah, it is it is to me, I kind of think about this a lot is like how much time I spend doing the thing, making the thing versus managing how we make the thing. And it turns out that the management part has become a lot more of my job, but almost necessarily to make it a better thing. I found that there's arms that I can cut off, if I could just exhaust this analogy. We're just gonna go for it. <laughs> there's arms I can cut off that are easily able to be taken up by very skilled people. And that's wonderful to see. The management part of it, as you describe it, is kind of not one of the arms. It's It's sort of one of the, octopi octopi of three hearts. So let's just go with that. It's one of the hearts of the octopus and uh, it, it's sort of the, yeah, the beating heart is what makes it what it is. So when people watch an MKBHD video, they're watching me on camera, but they're watching a lot of my words and my experiences being translated into a video form. And a lot of them aren't really thinking about that they're watching an edit or they're watching a review process or they're watching any of that other stuff. So the core stuff like the management, I have had to learn over time how to be a better boss and a better manager and a better accountant and and working with all this other behind the scenes stuff. But the fact that I can put time into that and it doesn't feel like I'm taking away from the edit or whatever other arms I've chopped off is uh, definitely a luxury that we've built in over time.
2: I used to ask everybody uh, who came for a virtual interview, how do you manage your time? And I, the reason I would ask everybody that is because I struggle with it so much. Uh, and I have the same problem as you. I host uh, this podcast. I manage our team. I have found that I need to be extraordinarily selfish with my creative time. I need hours, just uninterrupted hours, to think about the thing I'm going to make. And then I can actually make the thing quite quickly. But the time I spend thinking about what I'm going to make... Is very precious and I don't like to be interrupted. That's one way of doing it. There are other people who are just like multitask all the time. How do you come out?
3: Uh, I think I'm closer to you. I try to give my team here somewhat of a nine to five to make it a reasonable workplace environment, but I don't really ever turn it off. Now, there's there's some exceptions. I, there's no team sports this year, but I play ultimate frisbee, and that's like my weekends. And it just I don't really mix the two. But as far as like my calendar, like I'm very much. Into this is going to be our time for shooting stuff. This is going to be our time for, you know, everything that goes into the video. And then they go home at five and I'm just going to be here editing for a couple more hours and just making the thing uh, or writing or pre-production or whatever it is. Uh, So some stuff doesn't mix, as you say. Uh, Some stuff does.
2: How do you deal with, I mean, you have clients, right? You have an inbox. You have people want to make your deals. Clients are notoriously quite demanding in the advertising world. Do you, are you just as pushy with them?
3: Yeah, I kind of have to be, and sometimes WME gets to be the bad guy. But I, <laughs> I like to keep it very, very short and sweet. I think I tweeted a couple weeks ago, like, how many emails do I get that are just like, hey, this is us, we've got this idea, when can we hop on a call? No, I don't really want to do that. If you can, if you can't get your idea down in a couple sentences in an email, it's probably not a good enough idea. Yeah, uh, and maybe that's harsh, but that's just we have to be very efficient with with this stuff so, yeah, we, we say no, like I said, to 99% of the things that we get offered to do. But that, that last 1% of things we think very deeply about and work with a lot of people to try to make the right decisions and, and pull it off well. So that might turn into merch, that might turn into retro tech, that might turn into any number of interviews we do or projects on the channel.
2: What's your revenue split in a general sense between AdSense, sponsored integrations, merch, and the other stuff?
3: Yeah, I would say so. Revenue is probably about forty percent from YouTube AdSense, strictly those ads that get placed. Probably fifty percent uh, sponsored integrations that we build into the channel and the videos. And the last ten percent is miscellaneous other that includes the merch, that includes licensing, that includes random other appearance fees. Sometimes I'll hop on another show stuff stuff like that. It's 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 mostly the, those pay, those two big buckets.
2: When you think about growing your revenue or hiring people, obviously, you use fancy cameras, you get red cameras, I think we're all jealous of your cameras. Those are costs. How do you think about growing your costs versus your revenue? Like, do you think, I'm going to buy this camera and I got to make 10 videos to pay it off? Or is it, do you, I'm assuming it's more sophisticated than
3: that. Yeah. No, it, it used to be kind of like that. And luckily, our our output versus our costs is phenomenally efficient. You know, again, it used to just be me and a camera, and I didn't have... A studio. I didn't have a team. I didn't have employees. It was literally just me doing it in my spare time after a college class. So my expenses were food and <laughs> more gear <laughs> and like my cleats for that weekend. So yeah, I, it didn't really uh, have a process back then. Today, it, it is a little more of a balancing act. So now we do have the overhead of the studio. We have taxes, might be my biggest expense, honestly, but we obviously have equipment to buy and. And again, it's not even necessary equipment, but it's like, what will help this project? What will help this this team work well with the workstations everybody uses? And I guess, yeah, you can kind of think of it as like, we need a, we don't think of revenue on a per project basis, but I think I, I imagine it more on a monthly input-output, where uh, if we, let's say, don't do any sponsored integrations for a month and just have this much AdSense coming in, what's the difference between that uh, and how much we're going to have to pay for salaries and studio and equipment. And if we can spend that, great. If we can put it back into videos, even better. So if you're not cost per project,
2: which makes sense, like the standard TV network executive way of thinking about costs is cost per minute of video. Mm. That's how a TV show would get its uh, cost measured versus its revenue. Is that more of where you're at? Is we've made 100 videos that cost this much to make. We made this much money. We're ahead for the month.
3: I don't know that it's yeah I don't know about per minute I think it's I think it's still pretty broad for me in like a per month per quarter basis where it's like quarter one we will probably overall not have nearly as much like room to work with and put back into videos as quarter three or four um but none of it is ever so negative to the point where I have to think too hard about it and make business decisions based off of that so I guess it's luckily something I don't have to think about very much if we uh, now, this might change because we're hiring a bunch of people. We're <laughs> thinking about, uh, you know, building the space up. This might eventually be a thing where it's like we better make the money back. But uh, at the moment, we haven't had to think too hard about it.
2: Well, one thing that's really interesting is you don't have slots like a TV network executive thinks in thirty-minute increments. Yep. So once you have that fixed through the day, and you've got a bunch of producers competing for those slots, I think it's very easy to you can see how they ended up at cost per minute. Yeah. Right. Like how how much does this thirty minutes cost us? Right. And you just like end up there through the run of the day. You have effectively infinite slots on your own little network.
3: Right. But the thing about those slots is their value changes way more fluently and, and on way more different factors. So the, the cost of an ad spot on the channel has changed over time based on the things like the sentiment of the channel or the size of the channel growing over time or even what that video is about, if it's a positive or a negative video, does how well, how tied in is that integration to the video itself? There's a lot of science more than math, I think, that goes into you know how much an ad spot is worth. So in a TV world where you're like, this is how many viewers we're going to get and it's just gonna be a broad variety of people, this is how many eyeballs you wanna pay for, you can have it, that's, I think, really different from YouTube where it's like, how, how closely can we work with this company? How good of a thing are we enabling? What can we actually make? Like Those are different questions, I think, that don't really necessarily get asked as much in that environment that I think touch like everything we do.
2: So this kind of gets into one thing that I, I, I personally was very happy to see on your channel. We made an entire video about your ethics policy and what you will and won't do with advertisers. But just to draw the stark contrast, I have almost nothing to do with the revenue of The Verge, right? Like, I'm a very traditional journalist in that mold. Like, I, I know who our sales team is, and sometimes they parade me out in front of executives to, like, seem fancy, but I don't know what our rates are. Like, I'm very insulated from sales. You're in it. Like, you're, you're in It's your inbox, it's your deals, you're setting the rates. How do you balance that tension? Because it it's a very, very YouTube-specific tension in one way, but then I think we're seeing it across the entire kind of creator ecosystem.
3: Yeah, it's it's interesting the way you phrase it, like I I think of our our rates for like an ad and a video, like I said, as pretty fluent, but really it's a balancing act because you don't want to overdo it or pick the wrong thing or not consider some part of this that should be considered. Like there's there's a you want to make more, of course, so that you can pay for and put back into the projects and, and make better stuff and get that camera car. <laughs> but the other end of that <laughs> seesaw is like you see channels that do way too many ads, or you see. And again, it comes down to like what I would want to watch. When I'm watching a YouTube video, and there's three mid rolls, that feels a lot worse than zero or maybe one mid roll. You don't pay for YouTube Red. Well, I, on, I do, but like I said, I have to consider that. Like if I if I didn't have it, I would really dislike three mid-rolls so despite me having youtube red i never put three three mid-rolls in a video it's zero or maybe one if there's a good spot and so that applies to the the ads that we build in and make ourselves too like if it's a bad product it's not worth doing it at all even if we would have made a ton of money if it's a bad integration or if it's a bad company to work with, there's all kinds of reasons why it could be the biggest check that's ever been in the inbox, but I have to say no because it just doesn't fit. So that fit is is often more important than the math of of the per minute or per project basis.
2: Do You, you said dbrand was great because it was adjacent, but it's not something you review. Have you done deals with companies whose products you review?
3: I've done deals with companies whose pr- other products I've reviewed, but I've never obviously done a review and that is sponsored. And the closest I've ever come is doing like a, a sponsored video of, uh, you know, something like, for example, an a Lenovo laptop where I didn't review it, but I've reviewed Motorola phones in the past and Lenovo owns Motorola. So it's, it's tech stuff. But obviously once you do a sponsored bit with that tech, I'm not reviewing it. I've even seen channels where you can review that thing. But you can also disclose your relationship and your past sponsor projects with them. I have a couple of friends that have their entire channel sponsored by a company and review all of that, that company's products. And as long as the audience knows about it, it's fine. So everyone draws their line in the sand in a little bit of a different place. But for me, yeah, I've, I've never reviewed a thing and done a sponsorship with that thing.
2: Yeah. But say, um, I don't know, what we Motorola is a good example. You just brought them up. You have an ongoing relationship with Motorola. You get their next phone and you're like, this is a bad phone, I'm going to give it a bad review. Do you consider the negative commercial implication of that bad review on your sponsorship business going forward?
3: Yeah, that's one of the most interesting, like weird areas on YouTube. I didn't realize that people thought that way until it started happening to other people. So I've given lots of bad reviews in the past of things I really don't like. And that has never had any effect on my relationship with the company that made that thing, at least as far as I know. Maybe internally they're all raging at their screens, I don't know. But <laughs> the- <laughs> they, they are. Yeah, they, they are. But the access to the product, the way the review program works, none of that has ever changed. I don't think I'm blacklisted from anywhere, but I don't think that is necessarily true for every channel of every size. And so that's a, that's a decision that others have to deal with more than I do. For me, if a- if a motorola product comes out and it's bad the most important thing for me to say is exactly how bad it is so you can you can know exactly what to make your decision based off of but also so that you know i'm telling the truth and that i'm honest all the time there's a lot of stuff we've given negative reviews of and then the next product that comes out from that company they are twice as eager to get it in my hands because look we improved the thing that you talked about this is you definitely want to see this so uh, i think that's been my experience more often than not
2: That is uh, it's our experience, too. Um, The Verge is is big now, but it used to be small. And we used to feel that pressure. And one thing that's really interesting that I don't, I'm curious for your read on it, is as we've gotten bigger, the pressure has gone away. And it's expressed in a different way. It's expressed how you're describing. They fixed the one thing you complained about. So now they definitely want the positive review this time. And it's like, well, no, hold up. like You're not getting an entire video on how you fixed one keyboard. Like, (laughs) we're going to talk about your whole product. Do you did that change for you as you got bigger, or was it always kind of the same? Because you were on that early curve.
3: I think the more I think about it, yeah, it, it's definitely shifted a little bit. Uh, I've I've had reviews from a long, long time ago that were, I guess it's maybe it's part of the way I structure reviews, but there's always some sort of an overarching theme, or you kind of get like a motif or something that's repetitive through the video. So even if there are only three or four bad things about that product, if they're all bad for the same reason, that just sort of lingers after you watch the video, that this product is bad for this overarching reason, not just the one little thing. So a lot of times they'll fix one little thing, but the other parts of that overarching reason that were bad are still there. So yeah, you kind of find yourself trying to give credit where it's due. Look, they did fix the thing, but also here's the big picture. And it's still kind of, you have to paint the whole picture for everybody every time. So I'm kind of, I feel like I lost the question there, but I I just try to stay as honest as possible. And it is kind of disheartening to see, sometimes you do see companies sort of change their relationship with a publication or even a YouTuber for a negative review, for a review they didn't like, for a video they didn't appreciate. So I, I hate seeing that. And I I hope we stop seeing that, but it's a, it's a really strange environment that I haven't had to deal with, luckily, so far.
2: How do you think about yourself? I mean, you describe yourself as a YouTuber a lot. It's very clear. Like, I'm a journalist, and I I get all the baggage of saying that word, and I get some of the benefit of saying that word. Do you think of yourself as, as a journalist? Are you a, are you a creator? Are you a, an influencer? What is, what is your category, do you think?
3: Oh, God. Well, there's some weird words in there. Okay. Yeah. I... It really depends on who I'm explaining this to. <laughs> so for most younger people, I can say YouTuber and they'll get it. But that's for most younger people who've watched a lot of YouTube and are like, oh, I know what YouTubers do. To most older people or maybe people in business, I don't know. I don't say YouTuber very much. I also hate the word influencer. I don't know why. I feel like we all hate that word. <laughs> so I think the word creator applies best to cover what's happening, but it's a little more broad and it comes with the baggage of having to explain what that is. And then the, how do you make money doing that questions? But I think my most common answer, if I'm like, you know, on a flight or like someone's just like, Hey, what do you do? Uh, I say video producer. And usually that that is the end of the, the line of questioning because I've tried YouTuber and that doesn't basically I'm trying to end the conversation. <laughs> and So if I say tech reviewer, which I am, that is a job that I do. It's not usually very well understood. I could, I don't know if I would say journalist. I think that's, that's often in a different medium. So I think creator, creator is probably the, the one.
2: So that's, it's interesting. I mean, our, um, you know, our group of reporters who covers the platforms, we call them the creator's desk. We feel like we understand what that word means. Uh, Jake, our editor of the Creators Desk, his line for what they cover is how people use platforms and how platforms use people. It feels complete, like that's a complete idea. But yeah, we take that out in the world. Like we cover creators, and no one knows what we're talking about. Like it, it's whatever your your heart feels in that moment. But I want to push on not calling yourself a tech reviewer. You, you said that's just one of your jobs, and I do want to push on. You did put out a video about your ethics policy. Like you have some claim to doing journalistic work of doing traditional reviews, but you don't think that encapsulates your entire
3: role. Yeah, I think when I break it down, it's, it's really two distinctly separate jobs that have to connect and talk to each other and maybe even three. But I would say one is the reviewer part of it. Where you have whether you want to call it an ethics policy or, or whatever you want to call it, but you have your standards, the way you review things, the way you talk about things, the way you share what you're reviewing. That's one job. And then the other job is the content strategy, the the YouTube growth strategy, the the there's a, I've, there's other words I've used for this before, but that whole creator side of it, which includes the production side of it too, which is like, the, the video editing and making the video and then being on camera, all of this stuff that goes into making a YouTube channel and building a video channel is a very distinctly different job. So when I describe who I am or what I do, it feels like I'm picking between describing one of those things. If I'm a creator, I guess that's that's more leaning into the YouTube side of it for sure. But if I'm a tech reviewer, that's obviously leaning hard into the other side. So I, I don't know if there's any one word that fully explains everything that I do until I start getting into, well, I'm a YouTube tech reviewer. And then, <laughs> then they have a lot of questions. so it's tough.
2: We're going to take one more break. But when we're back, I have a few more questions for Marquez about his relationship with YouTube as a creator and using his platform to go beyond the traditional tech review.
0: Visit servicenow.com to see how we can help you put yes to work. The world works with ServiceNow.
4: Businesses of all sizes count on IT heroes to save the day every day. And because there's no telling what the day will bring, you need a built-for-business PC solution that gives you security, performance, manageability, and stability, no matter what stage you're in. Intel vPro is here to help. Intel vPro provides business class performance and reliability on powerful PCs that boost user productivity and satisfaction. And it offers multi-layer hardware-based security for below-the-OS protection, better application and data security, and advanced threat detection to help prevent issues before they happen. Whether the team is in-office or working from home, security is the name of the game. The Intel vPro lets you remotely update, restore, and secure your business's PCs, even if they're outside the firewall. Plus, the integrated and validated platform helps ensure smooth PC fleet management and means you can maintain and scale PCs with confidence, helping you save the day, every day. Intel vPro, built for what IT heroes do, built for business. No product can be absolutely secure. Learn more at intel.com slash IT heroes.
2: All right, we're back with Marquez. We've talked a lot about YouTube. You said AdSense is 40%, sponsor integration is 50 That means YouTube is 90% of your money. What is your relationship with YouTube like? I mean, you've you've seen the whole platform come up. It goes through its periods of scandal and then
3: relative calm and then scandal again. How beholden to YouTube do you feel? That is a great question. I feel strangely very, but also not at all. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but I can try it, which is basically... Uh, the, the audience follows the character MKBHD in a variety of ways in different platforms, whether it's Twitter or Instagram or TikTok, for that matter. And all of those platforms have different formats and different reasons to follow them, and that's by design. Some people post the same thing everywhere, and that's fine. So I feel like if you removed one of those channels, uh, the MKBHD character or brand would continue to live on but the bread and butter and the money like you said mostly comes from one of those platforms so the smart business savvy professional that i claim to be who went to business <laughs> school is like d- diversifying streams of income that aren't entirely dependent on one platform is very important and that's something we are actively working on and i've i've had a lot of conversations in the past year or two uh, working directly with companies and um, not an advisory role but almost like helping out with products and launches and things that I think are a good idea and they're not even in the tech space they're just other things I'm interested in and that's been really fun but also my relationship with YouTube is great you know it's a very turbulent environment to be on for a lot of channels and a lot of different genres not so for me <laughs> not so for a tech YouTuber <laughs> who doesn't curse and doesn't do anything crazy or talk about conspiracies It's it's been very reliable and that's definitely a luxury but I think, yeah, there's a there's a whole part of my brain that's dedicated to, to, to building this thing beyond just one or two platforms.
2: Yeah, you know, I was talking to Taylor Lawrence at The Times about TikTok stars and how that universe is growing. And she said, every TikToker wants to be a YouTuber. YouTube is the gold standard. It's the most mature platform. It's got the most monetization options. It has the widest range of potential formats. It's the most stable company. It's Google. Okay, you're on the gold standard. Where's the place you want to go next? Is it build out the Instagram revenue stream? Is it I'm going to be a TikToker? Or do you not think of it that way?
3: The way I think about it is right now, if I'm going to contribute, like I go back to the beginning, like I'm contributing to this wealth of information about a product so you can make a purchase decision. That's the fundamental thing that I'm doing. If the answer to the question, where should I go to find this information ever changes from let me just go look it up on YouTube, then I'll be there. So other platforms, I think, have distinct advantages in other things like entertainment. Like if I wanted to make a Netflix series, that wouldn't be me reviewing things. That would be very different. But I think the the, the bread and butter and the core of what we do, which is like the hubcap of the wheel, which is reviewing things, is YouTube because that's where people go for those things. And if, if that ever changes, I'm constantly looking at the way this landscape changes and new platforms bubble up and disappear and, and change the way they try to attack YouTube. I keep my eye on that stuff, but I don't see the answer to that question changing uh, very quickly or drastically for a while.
2: Yeah, I, uh, I always remind people that uh, Google is the world's number one search engine and YouTube is the world's second biggest search engine. And for that thing you're talking about, where can I, I need to type in iPhone review there's two boxes people are going to type that into, and you need to win at one of them. You talked about not being controversial on YouTube, not going through this turbulent time. You did make a video about Black Lives Matter. You have tried to change your audience over time and be a little bit more expansive. How did that video do? Did Was that you were just called to do it, or is that you want to use your platform to accomplish other goals as well?
3: Yeah. I I, I think a lot about what I use this platform for, because I didn't—it wasn't always a platform. It was always, uh, hey, I'm making videos about tech. If you want to watch them, come hang out. You can leave if you want. But we've built the subscriber base. We've built this this platform, as it's called, over time. And I've distinctly never really used my platform to do anything other than the tech world stuff. And I think the that over time I've realized that I do want to do more with the platform. Um, whether that's giving back to charities or giving back to organizations I've been a part of in the past that have built me up to where I'm at today that I really enjoy, whether that's speaking out about uh, injustice in this country and even in this world. I think a lot of that sort of has bubbled up and I've realized that I do actually have a platform to speak out about it. Um, But I've also personally always had a view that I, I never look up to someone for anything more than the reason that, they're looked up to. Uh, so, for example, you know Michael Jordan, the basketball player. I know celebrity culture is different in everyone's heads, but I look up to Michael Jordan, the athlete, and nothing else about that human. And you know, you might look up to Marquez, the YouTuber or the tech reviewer, but ideally, nothing else about me is on your radar as far as celebrity culture. But I, I realize not everyone thinks that way, and so I, I kind of try to. Make the best of it and and use it uh, for positive rather than negative.
2: It's interesting because I think that's that's how Michael Jordan wanted people to think about him, but that is not how LeBron James want people to think about him. That is not how many other modern celebrities like that. that internalized conception of celebrity for for people with platforms that size has definitely shifted over time. Is that is that just like a path that you're on? You're like. Marquez at 40 is going to be like, I built a school. (laughs) I think it's,
3: yeah, it's like, it's something I've realized. Like I, I, I personally have had this like one channel, like I, I'm a golfer. I look up to Tiger Woods, the golfer. You should not look up to Tiger Woods for any other reason than golf. Exactly. So I'll bring up Tiger all the time as like a a personal inspiration for a workhorse. And you know, there's all kinds of other reasons why you shouldn't look up to Tiger. So yeah, for me personally, I've realized that that's my, my one track mind, but Uh, I understand that athletes like LeBron have used their platform to accomplish incredible things and often really great things. And uh, I see that as an inspiration. And I feel like uh, me realizing that that's more often how people see that person uh, makes me want to use it for good.
2: You know, one thing you, you said this thing about reviews that I think is really interesting, which is you're helping people make a purchase decision, which is how I think about reviews, too. It's the core service a review provides to the world. And if you're not doing that well, then you might as well not think about doing anything else. But I think of it a little bit more expansively, because we also cover all the other bits and bobs of Google. Like I don't know how to cover the state of Android right now without talking about the fact that Samsung is effectively a monopoly provider of Android phones, and Google doesn't have a lot of competition. Or that Qualcomm's Qualcomm is effectively a monopoly provider of chips, and like, there's a whole antitrust conversation in this world. And I can, with a review, I can say I added up all this other stuff I know, right? Like, I can I can weave that all in and say, here's this purchase decision, but there's this larger set of forces in the world that have led to this product. Uh, the example I always give everybody is the answer to why does my iPhone drop calls is like the United States government exists, right? Like you have to like pull it all the way out to spectrum auctions and network capacity. That is a different, I mean that, that some of that stuff feels very political. I feel very political when we do it, but it's necessary to explain some of the products you're talking about, you know, this blend of using the platform for advocacy. Do you think that you need to engage on that sort of policy side, which opens you up to a world of political opinion?
3: Yeah, I, so that's part of actually why I'm building the team up a little more this year, is because we want to cover more stuff. And I think the the actual breadth of what I talk about has actually pretty dramatically expanded over time. It still is, obviously, in the tech world. But if you look back, I started with the HP Pavilion DV7T. <laughs> My first hundred-something videos were all about software and accessories for that one laptop, right? Right. So I'm in this world, obviously there's a little bit more on, you know, the iPod comes out and now there's the iPod touch. Now I'm talking about handhelds and a lot of it has become the smartphone world, smartphone hardware, smartphones come out, I'm reviewing them, but there's also now tablets and TVs. And I didn't talk about most of that stuff until the last couple of years. And now there's electric cars and now there's 5G and it's, it's been growing pretty steadily because there's, there's a lot of stories to tell for a better understanding of a viewer to, to, to pick up on all these things. And part of my goal is to continue to expand that to help not just help people make a decision about what to buy, but to help people better understand the tech world, which I think is hard to understand sometimes. Uh, so it, it helps to have writing help and research help and and try to get things as right as I can. But yeah, that is that is a, a pretty new goal for me and for the channel is to to help people better understand what's happening in the tech world, why it's happening, whether you should care, what part of it you should care about, what part of it affects you, things like that and and hopefully that can help them live their life a, a little bit easier in the future.
2: <laughs> but let me let me ask you like a like a hard question. We know that facial recognition systems are often biased against black and brown people, right? They don't they literally just don't see us as well. Do you weave something like that into one of your reviews? Because that's something, like, the Verge team would cover. And so I didn't have to do the work, right? Like, we have reporters do that work. And then when Dieter or Becca and I go to make the review on the channel, we just get to say it and put up our own headline and, like, the work is done. And we feel comfortable. I I know for a fact that we have negative sentiment about that stuff. We get comments about that stuff. But that's the totality of the Verge brand. The, The Verge character is that stuff as well. Is that a place you would go in your reviews? Or is that too political, or is it you're building the capability
3: to, to be there? A little bit. Uh, I have a little bit already, and I recognize that a lot of that comes from my personal experiences and not as much from research about others' personal experience. And part of that comes from the reviews mentality, where it's like, I reviewed this thing. Mine didn't break. Someone else's broke. I didn't talk about how this thing broke. It's because mine didn't break, right? So I don't have the extra experience from others using the same product or reporting about it to know this stuff. But pretty recently in my uh, blind smartphone camera test, I'm talking about how a lot of these cameras, when taking pictures of people with darker skin, do different things to the face than they would with someone with fairer skin. And I don't know that I've seen any sort of negative reaction to that, but that's, again, just coming from, I'm taking pictures of me. That's just something I found. So I don't know. I, I like the idea of being able to dive deep into others' experiences with the same thing to loop that into my coverage. But... As of right now, for the last twelve years of all these videos I'm making, all of it comes from what happened to me and when I use the thing. Uh, so that's that would be a, an interesting new leaf to turn, and I think I think it would be a good one to to start getting into.
2: One of the things I hear from YouTubers all the time is it's a grind. Like this is one of the best jobs you can have. It's one of the worst jobs you can have. Like you go a week without making a video, you got less money in your pocket, right? you've obviously scaled an infrastructure around you in a much more sophisticated way than a lot of YouTubers I talk to but you're launching another channel with other faces is your do you see 10 years from now you're still making 100 videos a year on your main channel and you've got a, a network around you or is it eventually you're going to become a media
3: executive and you're not going
2: to you're not going to have to actually make this stuff yourself
3: so my answer to that has always been as long as i really enjoy making videos I don't see myself stopping. <laughs> so that's one. Yeah. I, I will be making a lot of videos in the future, but I think the thing about like starting, you know, a new channel with new faces is like you get to sort of play with different ideas that aren't necessarily going to land on the main channel. And maybe those turn into projects that end up being a whole lot of fun and it becomes a recurring series and it's awesome. But yeah, I think the bottom line is that as long as I enjoy making stuff That's what I'm going to be trying to do is make stuff, and there's probably different versions of that in the future. There's different forms of making stuff, but I I like making stuff, so I think that's The way I see YouTube is it's kind of like driving for Uber. If you stop driving for Uber for a week, you won't make any money that week, and it's a little different, but that's, that's the general idea, and I think adding more people to this team kind of makes it feel like putting that Uber on autopilot, so I'm not doing quite as much of the lifting, but it still has to Drive.
2: I could live in this metaphor w- with you for another hour. There's a lot yeah. in that <laughs> metaphor. There's just a lot in that metaphor. Yes. But let me pull you all the way back to the beginning. Say you were a teenager again. You picked like a popular laptop. You got lucky. If you picked an unpopular laptop, I don't know that we'd you'd have this career. That's, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah. But you get your, you get your laptop right now, today. You get a new MacBook Air M1. You're 17 years old. And you're like, I, I found something about this laptop that I didn't see anybody else. Where would you make your first video?
3: I would make my first video maybe out of, i say force of habit, but just because it's my gut reaction, I would, I would make it on YouTube. You'd still be a YouTuber. I would still be a YouTuber. But I think, you know, obviously there's a ton of platforms available today that all have different languages almost that people speak. And if I'm 17, maybe I go straight to TikTok. Maybe there's like a seven second bit that I just want to show. And maybe that's the way to get the message out there. But I think my my fundamental beginning decision was like people are going to be looking for this. It's not so much passive entertainment. It's more active seeking out this information. So I'm going to put it where people can find it. And so for me, that's still YouTube.
2: Do you think right now, I'm sure teenagers ask you this all the time. Is, this, is it still a viable career path? Can you still start at the bottom and make your way to the top?
3: That is actually one of the toughest questions because I, I struggle to give any advice to people starting today because I started in a very different time. 90-something percent of the kids you ask, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? They're like, well, yeah, I want to be a YouTuber. And you're like, okay, well. They, they know what the world is. They know how that works. They're familiar with it. But it's, like I said, it's so saturated and it's so difficult to stand out but it's also at the same time, never been easier to start. So if you are cool with starting and making a hundred videos and never making a dime and it's just fun for you, that's never been easier. So I say do that.
2: Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for all this time. I love talking to you. We got to talk more often. This is great. Thanks, Marquez. Thanks for having me. Thank you again to Marquez for taking the time to talk today. And thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. You can also email us at decoder at theverge.com. If you like the show, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Sophie Erickson and Andrew Marino. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. See you next week.
1: Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Do you want a career that meets you where you are and takes you where you want to go? Whatever your individual ambitions, motivations, and skills may be, discover your potential at Deloitte, right along with purpose-driven teams and a difference-making culture. Be seen for who you are and celebrated for what you bring. Discover your impact at Deloitte. Learn more at deloitte.com us slash